the things that make us human are our interests, our passions, and our goals. The things that we're curious about, following that curiosity and doing it alongside people, because that is the single best way to build relationships. Not consuming social media feed, but to do things together with other people. If I fast forward through my career in finance and technology and advertising and marketing, when the early days of essentially web two, the early days of social media and social networking, it just all made sense to me. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning discovery, good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the Sidcast, Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today on episode number 138 is Gina Bianchini. Gina is the founder and CEO of Mighty Networks. Mighty Networks is a place that she describes it. It's creators with a purpose, selling experiences, relationships, and expertise to their members via community, content, online courses, subscription commerce, all offered in one place under the creator's brand. It's a system in place that allows you, if you're a creator, to put all of your materials there, all of your assets, all of the things you want to get out to your community. When I talked to her, I asked her, you know, well, as this compared to Facebook and this and that. And there's actually nothing or hardly anything that does exactly the same thing as what Mighty Networks does. And so that's pretty cool that she's able to do that. I mean, she's been involved with this kind of creation of networks and networks for business purposes. We all have our own network. I have this network through the podcast, through teaching and consulting and books and all kinds of other things. And I don't know that I'm going to do the Mighty Networks idea. I think it would work for me really, really well. But I'm kind of at a stage where I'm all about giving and not creating any new business. But if I was, it would be a tremendous platform for me to be able to put everything together and create assets that people could buy if they were interested and maybe subscribe to newsletters and get access to courses and all sorts of other things. And so she's helping creators monetize their creativity. And these creators could be any types of people. She has an interesting family background. Her mom, for example, raised guinea pigs. Her father was passionate about classic cars. She grew up in Silicon Valley, ended up staying there. She ended up going to Stanford later. She worked with Mark Anderson, who, of course, is royalty in Silicon Valley and is very big time venture capitalist and influencer today and writer today, but also one of the earliest mega players in Silicon Valley and a big venture capitalist. And so they worked together. They created something called Ning, N-I-N-G, that raised over $100 million. And we talk a little bit about her experience with Mark and what she learned from Mark. And of course, she's not on her own because she has a big team, but she's moved on from that experience. She's tough as nails. I suspect that is a prerequisite to be successful in Silicon Valley as a woman and as a woman entrepreneur. And all of those sub-themes, let's say, are part of our story today as we discuss her business and herself and her life and what she's trying to accomplish. Gina is also kind of an unusual guest for me on the Sidcast in that, I don't know, I came across something about her and things I was reading and I just connected with her on LinkedIn just out of the blue. We started chatting and she said, sure, I'm happy to do the podcast. And as you'll see, she's great. Very personable, very smart and has this idea around Mighty Networks that I think is cool and worth learning about. So Gina Bianchini on the Sidcast. Welcome to the Sidcast. My guest today is Gina Bianchini. Hi, Gina. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for joining me. I learned a little bit about Mighty Networks and I started reading about it and then I said, maybe I should be doing this. And then I thought even before that, well, let me talk to her and bring her on the podcast. She's a really interesting career track and entrepreneur and serial entrepreneur and investor. There's a ton of stuff to talk about. I also appreciate, said that when you have a podcast, what's great about it is you can learn about all the things that you're curious about by inviting somebody on. So I'm flattered and happy to be here. Yeah, that's actually been my modus operandi. What am I curious about? <laughs> I'm actually curious about a lot of stuff. 
longtime listeners will know I've got a lot of variety of different people. So this is great. Let's start with Mighty Networks. What is it? I want my listeners to understand some of them might very well be customers of yours by now. But sure. What is it and what does it do? So we are a software and service platform for building online communities that morph and evolve into online businesses and really a new kind of online business. So we allow people to bring together an online community, online courses, events, memberships, and so much more in one place under their brand and instantly available on the web, iOS, and Android under your brand and you own it. So it's like a template designed specifically for developing communities and offering them something. Yeah, it's a hosted platform. So one of our newest team members said, it's a little bit like if Discord and Patreon (laughs) and Teachable all came together in one solution. I thought that was pretty good. Actually, I remember the old Yahoo groups, which were these communities. I think it was just kind of a free-for-all back in those days. I don't even know. Maybe they still have them, although a lot of people... They do not. They do not. RIT, Yahoo groups. So how is what you do different and why are they gone? Well, they're gone for a number of different reasons, but let me start with what is similar or different. And we could play this game all day long. At the end of the day, you come to Mighty Networks, you build your own Mighty Networks. It's all hosted, it's set up, it's ready to go. And you can bring people together around an interest, a passion, a goal, a brand, a creator, a podcast, a online course. And it's really about how do you bring people together to master something interesting or important to them? How do you bring people together so that they can ultimately navigate a transition that they're going through and ultimately achieve results and transformation that we are much better and equipped to achieve when we do it together as a group of people or as a community? than trying to do it on our own. It's one of the reasons why we have schools, we have colleges, we have workshops, we have neighborhoods. We are meant to be together in communities that are the single best way humanly possible, said, to be able to build new practices, build new habits, learn something that's important to us. Not only something that somebody is teaching us, but learn from each other as well. That I think is more important than any feature set. Again, we have features that make us different, make us modern. The fact that you can do it, have a mighty network on every platform. But Yahoo Groups was really built at a time and a place where just the novelty of being online was there. So it was email based, which is fine. It's great. Mm. But fast forward. 22 years. And really the point of how we bring communities together requires innovation, requires things that are only possible on a mighty network today, like being able to bring your community and your courses and charge money for them together in one place. Without a mighty network, you would be, again, using Teachable, Patreon, Discord, a Facebook group, and having to pull all of these things together. We bring them together because it's not just about the novelty of bringing these features together, but rather about how we believe that the world needs community innovation and specifically software that makes each and every one of us better at hosting a great party. That's really the metaphor we use for everything that we do at Mighty, which is this ability to bring together guests or members of your community, connect the right people to each other, the most relevant people to each other, break the ice so that it feels normal and natural and not sort of weird and scary, and then bring people back around the things that are most important to them. Not every interest, but because Each Mighty Network is about a particular topic or it is around a specific niche, whether that plant-based, some of the, we call our customers hosts. So they host a Mighty Mm -hmm. Network and then there's members of those Mighty Networks. But yesterday I was talking to a host that is building a plant-based diet for people who are new to plant-based diets and building a Mighty Network for that transition, that experience, which has very clear results. You want to actually be able to build a sustainable practice around plant-based eating. Pretty straightforward. Another woman who was on the same call was building a community for female entrepreneurs and specifically female entrepreneurs on the soft skills and making connections there. Another was bringing together educators and change makers that are trying to move mountains 
that are a total pain in terms of trying to change systems. So what do you need in that situation? Well, to meet other change makers and be able to support each other in ways that are only possible when you come together as a community. Hopefully just that gives some meat yeah. to it. It's not about the features. It is about what people want to do. And when you start to think about it, it's like, oh, well, couldn't you do that on a Facebook group? Or couldn't you do that on Discord? Well, you kind of can. But I would argue and suggest, and, and certainly what motivates me as an entrepreneur and a human being is there is all sorts of things that software can do that we have not built yet. A part of me having worked in technology being from Silicon Valley, I grew up here. I'm personally offended that we haven't built it yet. And that is certainly one of multiple motivations for me and the work that I do. Bunch of questions popped to mind. You know, the first thing that popped to mind is you have these communities and most, I don't know about most, but let's say a lot are creating a community where they want to sell something, offer a service. But your description made me think that families can do this, especially extended families. And I wonder whether that already is happening. And what do you think about that? Yeah, so certainly they can use it. So I've been doing this work for a while. And this is actually my second platform, building these kinds of online communities that are smaller, in many cases, private or paid. And we'll get to paid in a moment because there's a different approach that I think is really surprising to people where we've seen a lot of people have success. But absolutely extended families can do this. Another place that I think there's so much opportunity is around companies. Certainly we use our own Mighty Network internally to the company. We use it as a complement to Slack or Microsoft Teams mm -hmm. because we're remote first today as many companies and startups are. So how do you meet new people? How do you break the ice? How do you know who works with you if you're not in an office together? So this opportunity for these kinds of communities that are built around a specific purpose becomes really important in many different cases. Yeah, I was also thinking about this, obviously teaching of Zoom for more than a year, starting in March of 2020. Zoom was kind of amazing to be able to have that and do that. And the quality of the education was actually good. It doesn't compare at all to what you can do in person, but it was good. But what was really missing, especially my students, my MBA students, is a very small school. Stanford's pretty small too. This is even smaller. And we're in the woods of New Hampshire. More exclusive. Thank you. That's great. More exclusive. The social connections are so deep and they couldn't do that. There were all sorts of things people were experimenting. Clubhouse became a thing for a while, and I'm not sure what's happened with that. And that's like one, go back to the word you don't like to use. It's one feature, and it's not a system or a community. But it sounds like I kind of wish I knew about it a bit earlier because our students could have benefited with something like this because it's a form of, I mean, it's a community setting thing when they're not in person. You are absolutely correct. I'm glad we know about each other now, but that's exactly right. So it's purpose-driven communities that need more than whether it's just video. We have video, we have live streaming, we have all of the things. But it's also about chat. It's also about profiles. It's also, and this is the part to me that is really exciting and what I wake up every day thinking about the possibilities is what happens when you have that context of whether it's an MBA program, whether it's something bigger that is even less exclusive, whether that's about plant-based eating or entrepreneurship or really any interest. We think in terms of transitions, which is actually a fun way to start to think about what the purpose of your community is. And so when you start to move down this path of thinking about communities built around a purpose, you start actually thinking about different kinds of features different kinds of things that we actually have an opportunity to build, which is kind of amazing. So I'll share this example with you. Going back to Yahoo groups, going back to Facebook groups, going back to Slack and even Discord today, they were all platforms that were built for people who already know each other. So if you think about Facebook and Facebook groups, Facebook's entire platform was built around people who already knew each other. They had something in common. And so you think about the magic number of seven connections that you make on Facebook. Facebook came to popularity in order to connect people who already knew each other. So Facebook groups was a way to have a private conversation or sort of another layer of organization on top of people who already knew each other. It's why you actually have no features on Facebook that provide a way to connect with strangers in ways that are orchestrated or thoughtful. Take Slack. Slack was built for small teams who already knew each other. 
as you start to scale up to 25 or 50 or 100 or 200 employees, the Slack model remains great for quick communication, but you don't know anybody anymore. Taking out an MBA program, the whole point of it is that you are learning together with other people who are on the same path. And the people who are on the same path are as important to the program as the content that any of us can get from reading books or watching online videos or taking online courses. It's the people that matter. And yet, one more, Discord, it was built for people to play video games, groups of friends to play video games together, which is great. What do you build? What kind of software do you build if the goal is to take people who are strangers and spark the connections that turn them into collaborators and friends. It's a different feature set that you start to build. And that's certainly what we're focused on at Mighty Networks. You know, you have all these different communities. Is there any interaction across these worlds, these communities? No, unapologetically, no. My world (laughs) is my world. Your world is your world. And yeah. Okay. Which I guess is what you want. Although I always think about opportunities to learn and see. Well, you can have opportunities to learn and see, but I would actually argue that the problem we've got in the world today where we've actually created more friction, animosity, culture wars, whatever you want, has come from not having enough places and spaces where we can be with others. And instead, it's having in your face every day, they're bad, we're good. We're good, they're bad. And so I actually believe that there is a really critical role for private communities built around common interests that are not these general platforms for making those kinds of connections and helping people learn from other people in new and interesting ways. Throwing everybody together in one general platform has not worked. So how do creators build their communities? I know how you set it up, but then will they come? How does that actually happen in practice? A couple really interesting stats. One, we see thriving Mighty Networks, thriving communities with 30 members. At 30 members, it's kind of the magical number. So if you think about Facebook's number of like, they had to get a person to connect to seven other people within, I think it was like the first 14 days. Then they knew that they would have somebody who was going to be active for us. A community with 30 active members, that is the magical number for creating something that is valuable to members, that is sustainable, that you can really build upon. The other really interesting thing is you can charge money at 30 members. And our average price point for a subscription that a host would set up to a Mighty Networks is $40. So that basically means that people are making over $1,000 a month with just 30 members. Pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. Pretty different than, say, on Instagram, where you need to have 150 or 200,000 followers to be able to make that same amount of money. Yeah. And then when you start to think about creators themselves, any of us as human beings, you don't even have to be a creator. If you can host... 10 people or 20 people, and each one of those people invites somebody else because you've created something that is valuable, that meets people where they are and helps them get to where they want to be around an interest, a passion, a goal, a lifestyle, a change in habit, a change in practices, then you can do this. It is available to anyone to host a community in the same way that it's available to any of us to host a party. So this is kind of a very practical question. So a lot of people that are creators are thinking about it, have all kinds of different assets, if you will, you know, whether they have an online course or... Or a podcast. Exactly. A blog. I don't know. It could be all sorts of things. I'm going to assume that that's kind of easy to make it appear on Mighty Networks, just kind of import it so that you don't have to recreate the wheel. So I have four courses that just launched not that long ago on Coursera. And so it's on their platform and they charge something for that. Is that something that could be brought into a Mighty Networks platform? Yeah. And what's fascinating about online courses on a Mighty Network is that was not something we set out to create. Mm. It actually came from our hosts. We're thinking that and building a platform for people to be able to host a party and specifically a party that you can turn into something that is really meaningful and build relationships between people. And the first folks that started using us really effectively were course creators. Again, we'd been basically up for a few months and they were like, Gina, why don't you guys just build online courses into a Mighty Network? That would like be super cool and a total game changer. And then I don't have to go to four different platforms and all this stuff. And we're like, what? But we integrate with all these. It's like you can link between your Teachable or Kajabi course and you still can link between your Teachable and Kajabi course really effectively. Same is true for Coursera. And then what people did is they came back and they were like, that's great. 
but just build it in directly. So we listen to our customers, which is, it turns out, a generally good thing to do. And we built in online courses and we saw our growth just take off, just take off. We actually launched the most popular and really new approach to online courses where one thing that you can do differently on a mighty network than you can really anywhere else is cohort-based courses are now popular online, which are essentially the way we've gone to school and the way we've Mm -hmm. been educated for what feels like a millennia at this point. So it's not really a new and novel thing. But it is better than online videos and PDFs. What we actually did is we took our foundation in community. And so we basically were like, yeah, you can create a content-only course on a Mighty Network. You can create a cohort-based course where you have your course materials and then the community is dedicated to that particular course. So only the people that are taking that course can be in that community, just like a subgroup within a Mighty Network. But we flipped it on its head and offer a third option, which is you lead with the community and you build the course live. So you record this kind of a session and if people want to show up, great. And if they just want to get the replay, they can do that as well. We would, for example, say at the end of this, well, this week's action or this week's homework is one of the things I always try to do is find a different word for homework because it just (laughs) nobody likes homework. (laughs) So I like an action, a challenge, whatever. Application learning. Yeah. Yeah. Snooze. Quest. This week's quest (laughs) is to come up with your big purpose for your community. If you were to create a community, what's your big purpose? What would be the motivation for people to join? And post it in our course community. And the community is front and center. And then as you are recording lessons or lectures, you build the course material behind it. It is a game changer. It is a game changer to have a community-powered course where you lead with the community and you're building the course material behind it. So that is a very long answer to your question. Can I bring my Coursera courses into a Mighty Network? And the answer is yes. And you can do so much more than just bring in a static course You can bring it to life in the same way that you bring it to life in the classroom and with sections and group projects and all of the things that really makes education such a profound and important experience for so many of us. So you've described how you've learned and added and listened to customers, but where did the initial idea come from and how similar was that initial idea to where you are today? If I go back in history and I'll hit two historical points. So one, I grew up in a very close-knit community in Cupertino, California in the 70s and 80s. I came from a family where my grandparents started the Lions Club in Cupertino and were active members in the community. My dad was a high school history teacher. So we had this very, very close-knit world. It was also a place where everybody had a hobby. Everybody Mm. had an interest. My father restored old cars. So he had a Model A Ford, a Model T Ford, Mercedes 300 SL on a high school history teacher's salary because he was restoring it from the parts. My mom raised guinea pigs and showed guinea pigs. Showing guinea pigs is a thing. I didn't know you could do such a thing. Okay. You can do that. And this was our community. It was Mm -hmm. around what you were passionate about. I also grew up around engineers that were tinkerers. My father was a tinkerer in one way. My friend's parents were tinkerers in other ways. And about two miles away from my house growing up was where the homebrew computer club meant. And I don't know if you are familiar with the history of the Homebrew Computer Club, but it was where Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak met, where they came up with Apple Computer and where today in my hometown, you have a (laughs) multi-trillion dollar company that has preserved the orchards, that has built something incredible. And I knew from that moment, not that moment of like, you know, Apple computer, but just where I grew up, the things that make us human are our interests, our passions, and our goals. The things that we're curious about, following that curiosity and doing it alongside people, because that is the single best way to build relationships. Not consuming social media feed, but to do things together with other people. If I fast forward through my career in finance and technology and advertising and marketing, when the early days of essentially web two, the early days of social media and social networking, it just all made sense to me. 
just all made sense to me. And so I founded with a friend of mine, a platform called Ning, which gave people a way to create their own social networks with their own choice of features and their own ability to bring people together around a specific topic. Similar to like, you could have a website that you could program and make your own and it would be for millions of different interests. We wanted to do the same thing for social networks and had actually a lot of success. What I learned from that experience, so by the time I left Ning, we ultimately sold the company. We had 3 million Ning networks created, 300,000 active on a monthly basis, serving 100 million people around the world. I absolutely fell in love with the people who create community and the members who join and participate. And I knew in 2008 that I would work on this particular challenge for the rest of my career and probably the rest of my life. I'm obsessed with how we use technology to bring the things that we're meant to do as people, which is connect to others, build relationships, explore new topics, change and evolve, have novelty. All these things, whether it's psychology, sociology, anthropology, neurobiology, it all kind of comes back to the same universal human experience, which is we are social animals that are meant to live in community with other people. And communities are the single best path to us being able to realize our full potential and live the lives that we want to live. I just have to ask you, because you said you started Ning with a friend. It's a pretty famous friend, if I got it straight. Mark Anderson, who's, you know, one of the legends of Silicon Valley. Yes. So what did you learn from him? What did he learn from you? Because you were partners for maybe five years as you were building that business. Well, you'd have to ask him when you learn from me. But I can say the things that I learned from Mark were profound. I think that first and foremost, I learned the power of grit, resilience. He is a fighter. I really respect that. I really appreciate that. The thing that he does that I think is an incredibly important skill is he consumes ideas, he reads, he watches TV and connects all of them in new and interesting ways. And I really respect that. Of all of the really successful people I've had the fortune to get to know here in Silicon Valley, the generation I grew up with, basically, I think he's probably the single most important connector of different trends and different ideas. And if you have an opportunity to listen to him talk on podcasts, you will learn things that are not obvious. And I think it's really important and really impressive. So it's something that I really have a lot of respect for. So at the end, you said you sold the business. Mm-hmm. How similar was the earlier version of my networks then to you change what you thought could be better? And what was it that you wanted to do a little bit differently? The major differences between Ning and what is today Mighty Networks. Mm-hmm. Number one, at that point in time, we thought that the way that you built this kind of platform where people could have their own communities, their own social networks would still be an advertising business. Now, If you fast forward and you look at platforms like Shopify or Squarespace or Wix, they're actually SaaS services. So you essentially pay somebody. And interestingly, at Ning, we had a way for people to pay us money. So you could pay us to take our Ning brand off. You could pay us to like run your own ads. And our fees were a total of $36 a month. So we charged IBM that 100,000 person intranet on Ning and we charged them $36 a month. Not too much. <laughs> Not too much. Not enough to create a sustainable business. And I think that it's important, I think for any entrepreneur, any business person to not just take the business model that seems like the right one that everybody is doing, mm-hmm. which again, in 2007, everybody was in advertising business. <laughs> That's what you were going to do. Mm-hmm. And we were sitting on a very successful SaaS business that we didn't fully take advantage of. The second thing that is different between Ning and Mighty is mobile. So when we started Ning back in 2004, and then we really saw success in 2007, there was no iPhone. There was no Android device. And so when we built Mighty Networks, we needed to make sure that we built in from day one, not just a SaaS model with subscriptions, which is the right model for this kind of relationship we want to have with our hosts, 
But also we needed to build the platform in such a way that it was instantly available on every platform and worked across platforms from web, mobile web, iOS and Android. And so those are really the two big differences. And I would say it's a great lesson for any of us as entrepreneurs or business people that sometimes you can make a hundred right decisions. And if you miss on a couple of these sort of key pieces, just right on the margin, you can have a totally different growth trajectory. And so when I started Mighty, it was all about how do we continue the mission of unlocking a host's ability to create not just an innovative community, but an innovative online business as well. And in order to really look at it and think about it in the context of every single platform from the very start. I'm going to ask you kind of a simple question just to wrap up this part, which is if you want to make money with a website or any online business, is it advertising and subscription? Are those the two major models or is there something completely different? (laughs) So first of all, I think advertising as a model for any normal human being is off the table. So we live in a world where online advertising is really about the duopoly of Google and Facebook and everybody else just trying to keep up. So yes, there's brand deals for creators and things like that. But for the most part, as normal human beings that are looking to build value, I think subscriptions, one-time core sales are really the two big ones. And then I would say there is a third that is emerging with Web3 crypto, where it is about how do you build essentially an economy, an asset that creates shared upside in a community that is coming together to build value, to create the conditions by which people can realize their full potential in that particular area. There is absolutely no reason why a community is not building value together. And that's where I think whether it's play to earn models, learn to earn models, we are still working at, we are in very early days. We're still working out all the kinks. But at the end of the day, from where I'm coming from, which is how do we bring amazing, meaningful and very natural and beautiful communities to more and more people around the world? I love NFTs. I love Web3. I love How do we bring more and more utility to a community that is building shared upside together, building value together? And that, I think, is where we are evolving to. I'm really excited about that future. As a, let's call it a Silicon Valley insider and observer of business in general, what do you think of Meta, not the company necessarily, but VR and AR? Do you think it really could be this next big platform? Because there's, as you know, incredible multi-billion dollar bets left and right, tens of billions of dollars bets by companies. Look, here's how I would answer that. I think that we are all living on a spectrum of digital to in real life or IRL, and especially for newer and newer generations that are spending as much time as they are spending in Minecraft, in Fortnite, in Roblox, like the idea that you have this expansive online world that is a complement and Mm -hmm. a blend to your life in the physical realm. I think the reality is that more and more of us, especially this next generation, they see it as a continuum. Now, what does that mean in practice? Well, I think that that means that we are going to define ourselves by both a digital and physical identity. I think we're going to be very comfortable with digital and physical experiences. What I don't think it means, what I don't think it means is that we're all going to have an avatar that lives in like a boring, beige, rich guy's living room or that we're going to have a metaverse where it's like you go to work and sit at the same beige, boring desk that you would sit at five minutes away in Menlo Park. Like what a snooze. If that is the only thing that we are going to do with technology, we should all quit our jobs or get fired because that is the most most boring thing I can possibly think of. I think that's going to fail. I think that's going to be the segue of the metaverse. And what I think instead is the interesting question is how are we creating experiences, brands, products that build for this spectrum, that builds for this blended, integrated world between digital and IRL? That to me is really interesting 
But I think that the way it's going to show up and the way it's going to work, we're going to iterate our way into that. We're not going to put on some goggles and like hang out with like the cartoon version of our colleagues in a boring online conference room. I don't want to go to Regis in real life. The last thing I want to do is go to like a boring Regis office in the metaverse. No offense to Regis. No, that's the opposite of where I think we're going. Let's talk a little bit more about you, Gina, as an entrepreneur and growing up. So you mentioned your parents. Someone who actually grew up in Silicon Valley is a rare person, I think, right there. And you went to Stanford, I think. You did your undergrad and your MBA there. So I don't know if they let you out of Silicon Valley at all in all this time. But I did. <laughs> what a bunch of changes that have happened. And I'm not going to ask you, could you have foreseen it? Nobody could foresee all of that. But what are some of the ways you think about the changes of life in Silicon Valley? That's a topic now with the cost of people working from home, people escaping the incredible costs that are there. I mean, that's just the tail end. Well, I think unfortunately and sadly, what we're going to do is find ourselves that it's not escaping the cost of Silicon Valley. It's that when companies like Airbnb or Google or others say, certainly we say this at Mighty Networks, like you can live anywhere you want at Silicon Valley salaries, we are going to literally raise the cost of living and certainly raise the cost of housing everywhere in the U.S. and everywhere around the world. I live in Palo Alto. I'll probably stay here. But here's what I would say about Silicon Valley. There's not some like cool kids club. I think there's a sort of a set of people that act like it's we, you know, we do this or we think this or mm -hmm. we're now all moving to Miami. It's like there's no we. If anything, it's an idea. And the idea to me of Silicon Valley is just so magical and so special. And it's the following. It is the integration of science and art. Innovation comes from the blending and bringing together of teams of people that represent science and art, technology and art, the liberal arts and the engineer. Mm -hmm. We've gone through different phases, ebbs and flows where there are people in this world that talk about how liberal arts people are dumb and you should only be an engineer or bust. And then there are other people basically reminding those same people that only with a liberal arts background or with the ability to write, the ability to communicate, the ability to inspire. We would not be living in the world of new technology and innovation without both of those things coming together. And they came together in Silicon Valley for a variety of completely random reasons, but they came together. And so if anything, I'm continually humbled by you cannot achieve success with just liberal arts or just engineering, it has to be the coming together of both. And I think that to me is what is the power and beauty of where I grew up, the culture I grew up in. Yeah, there's a lot of people I grew up with that don't live here anymore. Mm -hmm. And there's an equal and cool number of people that are building the future. And there's a place for both. And this is a question, no doubt you have been asked many times, but as a woman, in Silicon Valley, with all of the things you read about, and actually the data on venture capital funding and all occasional court case, what's been your own personal experience as a woman entrepreneur in Silicon Valley? It was interesting. I did an interview maybe like a couple months ago now, and the person that was interviewing me talked about leading the witness. It was like, how have you dealt with hardship? How have you felt did you have imposter syndrome? All this stuff about basically like, tell us about your experience feeling like an outsider. And I'm sitting there like, um, guys, I grew up here. You all came here. You came to me. I didn't go to you. So I think that this whole notion of it's the world of these tech bros mm -hmm. and that they're defining the future and it's all about them. I see that. I understand that. But it is up to each and every one of us to decide what is our reality. And my reality is I was here first. So <laughs> suck it, basically, is sort of how I feel. The second thing I would say is the path of being an entrepreneur for anybody is hard. For anybody, it is hard. It is harder for women. It is even harder for people of color and the hardest for women of color. That is the way it is. So you have two choices. One, you can strap on the additional emotional labor of being mad about it and saying, oh, that this investor told me no because I'm a woman or I'm getting asked different questions because I'm a woman. Or you could do something slightly different. And I found the slightly different has worked 
better for me. And again, because I've tried everything and it's the following. One, life is not fair. I think this idea that anybody who is entering, and I think we've done a disservice to people that life is fair, the assumption that life is fair. I personally, when I have gotten very comfortable with the fact that life is not fair, I have been happier and feeling light and excited about the world when I'm like, life is not fair and winning matters. Mm -hmm. Winning matters. Sometimes you win and sometimes you lose, but winning matters. And the winners get to define what the culture is and what the rewards of winning are. Once you know that that's the game that any of us are playing, it's like, okay, so what now? Earlier, I would say in my career, especially at sort of the height of like all of the social science research that says it's so unfair, it's so hard, it's 2%, it maybe it's like 3% of all. If you stay in that world, Mm -hmm. I believe that I was the least happy at almost guaranteeing my failure. I have found that I've been more successful I have had more fun when I start from the place of life is not fair, winning matters, and what I choose to do with those things is the most important decision that I can make. And let's go. Right. Let's figure it out. You don't strike me as someone who feels sorry for any things that have happened. You just put your head down and you figure it out. Yeah. Like I've had times and places where I feel sorry for myself. Like I am not above a pity party every once in a while. But what I also have realized, and the data is pretty clear in my own life, when I have fed into that, it's harder and less fun than when I'm like, hey, you know what? Let's keep going. Let's move forward. That shift and reframe is going to be true for men, women, and anybody who is trying to take on something that is hard. And this is hard. If it was easy, everybody would do it. And finding the thing that you fight for and the thing that you're building for, that's where my energy comes from. I want to help hosts build amazing communities so that the members who not only want those communities, but need them in their lives to achieve the results and transformation that they mm-hmm. want to achieve. Those communities need to exist in the world. So I can feel sorry for myself and focus in on, you know, that it's harder to raise money. It's potentially harder to create the full value, but there's a lot of benefits as well to things being harder. You have to be more disciplined. I'm always building for not having access to capital, even though I've had access to capital. I am never assuming it is given or granted that I will be successful or my company will be successful. And so it's really sort of created an even sharper focus on my customer, on what they need, what they want, what I can provide. And ultimately, that again, life is not fair unless I find and unlock for them true value that then can scale. I'm not going to win. So the rules of the game are pretty clear. This is a strong philosophy and strong doesn't mean good or bad. It's just clear. And so I'm wondering about the people that are on your team that you hire, especially younger people. There's been a lot of attention to CEOs becoming public spokespeople about the issues of the day. And there's a lot of discussion around and there's no shortage of these issues. So it's kind of like a two-part question. There's the part about being the public spokesperson, but there's also the part about what you teach or how you frame the work you do, the quest you're on with the younger people that you're hiring that are joining the team. I fundamentally believe that each and every one of us as human beings are multifaceted and that the happiest, most fulfilling life is one where we have our core values and that we can then experiment and try new things and evolve and live out different parts of our lives in different ways. And so that fundamental foundation and belief system is also where I come out as your company and what you work on is one part of your life. And so what does that mean in practice? Well, it means I am not of the school that says our company is a family. We are not a family. Hopefully you are investing in building strong family ties with your actual family or with friends. What we are actually here for is to provide a big, amazing challenge, creating something that does not exist today. Software that has not been built, 
That is what I want Mighty Networks to offer people. It cannot be all things to all people. Now, again, does that mean we don't have values? It doesn't mean that we don't have integrity. Does it mean that we don't believe in something? Absolutely not. We absolutely believe in the power of community and doing absolutely everything that we can do to unlock a community that gets more valuable to more people with each new person who joins and contributes. But that is what Mighty Networks is here to do. Mighty Networks is not here to solve all of the problems of the world. Does that position evolve? You know, am I learning every day? Absolutely. But I also feel very strongly that where we have built purity tests, whether that's on the left or the right, is tearing us apart. And as a passionate community builder and believer, I believe it is our job, it's my job, to find ways to bring people together. I was having this conversation actually yesterday with a close friend of mine about the role of business in this moment. And I would say that we have an opportunity with business to essentially say that there is something sacred about taking politics out of every aspect of our lives and looking for ways to reduce the culture wars, not to use business as a means of feeding into them. And I don't know what that means in every way, Mm -hmm. but what I do know is that I do not believe that the ways that we are being told as business people and as human beings that there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. I don't believe that we have it all figured out. And the more that we feed into that, I think we end up at a very bad place. That is a very interesting point of view because there are plenty of other people that feel incredible pressure. Leaders, CEOs feel incredible pressure to speak out because what they tell me is, First of all, for many people, it is something they really believe in. They are defining their role maybe slightly differently than what you just gave voice to. But they also say, you know, our people, young people seem to, that's what they want. They want to know that they're in a company and an organization where the leader is willing to speak out in favor of certain causes that could be liberal or conservative. They're more often liberal than conservative. It could be either one. So actually what you're saying, it's completely fair. It's a little bit gutsy, I'm going to say. I think you're going against the tide a little bit with that point of view. Well, we covered a lot of ground. I want to ask you something real quick, an easy one. What's the favorite thing that you do? Like all the things you do in a typical day or week, what's at the top of the list? Such a good question. I've been very fortunate that I am at a stage of my life and career where I get to define what my day looks like. I wake up super excited about what I'm working on. So I'll tell you the perfect day for me. So first and foremost, I wake up pretty early, fired up for the specific thing. So I wake up about an hour early than anybody needs me for. And I sit down with just like regular printer paper and like a big pen and like a latte. And I just write out whatever's on my mind, whatever I want to think through. It is my form of meditation. It is my form of just being in the quiet especially for me, I'm a morning person. And so whatever I was processing overnight, I respect that. I pay attention to it. Just love writing these morning pages. And it's my favorite thing. So I wake up. And so I start my day in a really good mood because I've carved out this time for new thinking, being able to connect those dots around things that are really important. And it's super exciting. I take myself out for lunch. That's like a really great day. I'll go out to lunch. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's reflection is what you're talking about. Giving yourself time to do it every day takes a lot of discipline, actually, because there's a million things that are going on all the time. I've talked to people that say that they will make a list like that of all the things that are bothering them, that they're upset about, and they lock it in there to get rid of it. So it doesn't bother them. To me, it's not about what's bothering me. It's not a to-do list. It's literally, I'll wake up. If there is something that's like, oh, I got to call that person or I got to do that thing or I'm annoyed by this, I'll write it down on the right-hand side of the page. But I leave open the main body for once I've done that, then it's about brainstorming. It's about exploring ideas. It's about drawing. It's really important to me that it's not lined paper because sometimes it's a sketch. Sometimes it's text. Sometimes it's a map. I will say, I don't feel like it's particularly disciplined at this point. And this is the power, again, of community and and why I'm such a passionate bordering on obsessed evangelist or communities is that once you build 
a practice. Being a part of a community when you're building a practice is the single best thing you can do because it's like a thousand points of light in terms of connecting you to accountability for that practice. And we all have a limited supply of self-discipline. So community gives us more discipline. It gives us more opportunity to make it something we don't even have to think about. The hardest part is getting up, but now it's not hard anymore because I've been doing it for three years. And if I don't do it, I have a bad day. It becomes really easy. And I think that that's true for anything that we want to take on or the ways that we want to change our lives is starting with a community that gives you ideas, lets you tweak things, reinforces that you're not alone in doing these things and that you can benefit from each and every one of our stories is really powerful. Gina, last question for you. It's an advice question, but it's a particular spin on the advice because it would be advice to yourself when you were, say, 20 years old. Because, you know, we all learned so many things. And at the age of 20, nobody's got it figured out. At the age of whatever, we never have it figured out. We're always learning. But if you could magically go back in time to find the 20-year-old Gina, whatever you may have been doing, and lean over to her and say, if there's one thing I want you to know or not know or do about life, what would it be? I'll give you a couple because I think about this question quite a bit. So number one, it's eat protein, not carbs. That I wish I would have learned earlier. Two, this practice of morning pages, I wish Mm -hmm. my 20-year-old self had it. Three, when you buy clothes, don't buy them five sizes too big and think that they are flattering because they are not. Buy clothes that fit or go to a tailor and have clothes that fit. I know it's not about (laughs) dreaming of the future, but literally there are things that as I've learned them in my 30s, I was like, oh man, I wish I would have known about like protein and weightlifting in my 20s in a way that I know about them in my 30s. There are things that I wish I knew. That's very practical. And I bet people are checking it off on their list to kind of get their act together on that. Sunscreen is another good one. (laughs) There's a number of them. Gina, thank you so much for being on the SITCAST, sharing your story, the Mighty Network story. We had a great chat. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SITCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SITCAST is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please consider giving us a five-star review and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SITCAST is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.